Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, Chris Jonu, your buddy from Melbourne, back at it again. And today, we're bringing to you one of these you know, popular international fireside chats that we've hosted. And there certainly seems to be quite a bit of overlap from music and, and sports into investing. This was no different. We had Startup Grind Uppsala host, Ulf Ekberg from Ace of Base. That's right. Sweden's third largest pop group of all time. You're starting to think about those tracks right now. Go ahead. You can sing them. Ace of Bass. And he talks about his early life, the journey of founding Ace of Bass, and the, you know the incredible story of that success. And then now his new focus on investing in tech with companies like uh, Norvik Ventures and founding his own AI-based music startup, Zoundio. That's Z-O-U-N-D-I-O, Zoundio, which I'm going to check out right after this. Thank you, Ulf. And yeah, incredible story. And hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Um, so um, I just want to sort of get a sense. I think it's best to start at the very beginning because that's a very good place to start. Um, I think uh, I just wanted to get a sense of like how it was growing up in, in Gothenburg in the 80s and, um, and uh, what was the young Ulf like? Uh, well, I grew up in a, in a, in a family. Um, my father was a computer engineer, um, and I was born in 1970, so I um, uh, brought up with Vilsi on TV. Uh, we had a very socialistic country in the 70s. Um, uh, somehow we survived that, and, um, and we also survived the nightmares from Vilsi Pankokam. My father um, uh, bought me a Commodore 20 in 1981, and he wanted me to uh, learn programming. So I learned programming when I was 11. Um, very simple things, uh, programming called basic. <coughs> but I was very into music already at that time, and um, uh, talking about ABBA, my first album I bought was 79. Uh, when I was nine years old, was ABBA. But my second album was Kraftwerk, um, a German band. <coughs> and... Um, they came out with an album called Computer World, 1981. It was all about the world will be connected by computers, every person on the planet will have a computer. Every song was about computer, computer love, computer uh, world, etc., etc. And I was so inspired by this, and I decided when I was 11 years old, I want to work with computers, technology, and ele electronic music. So I started my first little band, uh, programming, and I did a synthesizer as my first program. And I sit there, it was completely horrible, of course. Um, and uh, this Commodore, Commodore 20, uh, the 20 stands for 20K. So the whole computer processing power was 20K. Um, uh, and the whole memory. And it was a tape recorder. So you have to, uh, each time you loaded something was 20 minutes. And then each time you were saving something was 20 minutes. Um, uh, and then... Um, 83, uh, Commodore 64 came out, and uh, MIDI was invented, which was revolutionizing the whole music industry because you could communicate between computers and synthesizers and synthesizers to synthesizers. And um, I learned to program machine code, uh, which was a little bit more advanced uh, language. Um, and I did my first sequencers, and uh, I connected all this. I was sitting there as a super nerd in my little studio, and I... Um, I kind of was self-taught uh, programmer loving electronic music. That's a little bit how I ended up in the in the music industry. And it seems that you're a bit before your time uh, in terms of music and tech. Um, how was that growing up? Like, did you have any problems? Like, were your peers supportive of that, or or was it a bit? It was still a bit weird. Well, um, I mean, computers. Uh, to to do something more than just playing games on computers, uh, my parents was very supportive at. They were not so supportive at that I built two large speakers in my bedroom, and I played very loud music very late. Um, so they were kind of uh, half supporting uh, my music thing. 
Um, they obviously wanted me to focus on studies, but I was a little um, uh, wild boy on the streets at those days. So um, uh, they were just happy that I actually had something uh, serious to, to, uh, to uh, hold my life around, which was the music. Um, <coughs> I think um, uh, those days, the early days in the, in, in the 80s, when I really decided what I wanted to do, it's quite funny that it all came back when I got a little bit older and after school that I kept on being interested in computers and kept on being into electronic music, which was a very, very niche music style uh, in the early 80s. It was called synth music, uh, Kraftwerk, Depeche Mode, Soft Cell, Human League, and these bands, which later became, uh, obviously, the, I mean, uh, today you call it EDM, but uh, those days it was very, very niche. Um, and um, when, we, we, when I met my partner in crime, uh, Jonas Bergerin, in the band, uh, 1984, on a concert, the Peshmer concert in uh, Lund. Uh, we uh, decided to work together and uh, do uh, experimental synthesizer music, and um, that led into um, uh, the founding of a band called Technoir '88, uh, and then we renamed that band to Ace Base '1990. And it seems that you were always the ambitious type. Um, was 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 there any struggle in terms of um, like the lagom culture of Sweden and like how did you navigate that? Well, first of all, to be from Gothenburg uh, sucks uh, if you want to have a record deal <laughs> because there's no record companies in Gothenburg, um, and uh, I don't I don't think it's still any record companies in Gothenburg. Um, so uh, we knew nobo nobody in Stockholm, of course, and uh, we had no money either. So um, <coughs> we were sitting there uh, working uh, very hard in a dream we had, uh, a very ambitious dream. Uh, not a vision dream in a way of taking over the whole world, but it is a vision dream to get out of the shithole we were living in. We were basically... Uh, living in a small studio, 20 square meters, 24/7 uh, um, uh, for, for four years. So we 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 locked us in and we covered the the uh, the, the windows. So we didn't know if it was uh, dark or light outside. And literally, we worked until we passed out, and then uh, we continued working and then fall asleep. So we worked kind of in shifts, and um, not very unusual. We worked in 50 hours on a on a, on a road, and it was before Red Bull existed, and definitely no drugs. So there was only coffee, really bad coffee, and uh, a lot of energy, uh, apparently. So we kind of had, we met no friends. Uh, we just had each other, and um, uh, I, I lived in that studio for four years without a shower, and I had to walk to uh, family Bergen, my partner Bergen, Jonas Bergen's family house for 20 minutes every day to take a shower. and. Um, collecting money. Um, we It was quite expensive to build a studio, um, much more expensive than having technology today. Um, so I worked extra as um, uh, as a chef on uh, on Stena uh, to Germany, uh, and we all worked extra as uh, oil sanitary uh, guys who cleaned up oil, contain uh, oil um, uh, storage uh, which was a pretty dangerous job. Uh, the reason why we got that job was because the two other guys that had it before us went into the wrong, uh, um, um, because, uh, um, storage uh, facility, and there was uh, some gas there, and they died. Uh, so uh, it was a pretty interesting job to have, but uh, we did everything for the music. <laughs> Um, and um, that was enough for us to keep us f floating and to invest in all these crazy machines that we had in the studio. Um, this one sampler cost like 5,000 euros or 50,000 kroner. Um, and we had a lot of uh, technology. We loved technology. So h working hard and then focus all the extra time on the in the studio. Um, so um, for Jonas and I, was uh, it was a big... Um, it was a very ambitious project, and then um, we needed two girls to, to... We needed people to sing, of course, on this, and uh, it was easy because Jonas had two sisters uh, who had good voices, and we got them to start singing with us, and that was kind of the, 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 the formation of, of the band. Um, 
originally we we were a house band uh, so we did like kind of hardcore tech music uh, house music um, but we were producing um, a few bands we had a, um, um, a common share uh, studio area with other bands in an in a old garage and um, there, there was uh, one of the bands out there was uh, was a reggae band really great reggae band two guys from Jamaica and uh, again we loved big speakers and this time it was really big speakers so I had like eight 18 inches bases which in a <laughs> in a facility like that with very very thin walls it was not uh, very easy for the other bands to hear anything we were playing very loud um but this this reggae band was far away they, they thought we had some some good uh, good tracks and and sounds so they asked us to produce one of their songs and that actually became our first reggae song that's how we ended up doing some reggae beats um and um uh, I got very inspired by by the experimental of mixing reggae with electronic music and and drum beats. And it would have been quite hard to foresee the extent of success that you were going to have later on. Um, what what was the actual aim when you first started? What what was like the top thing that you thought that you could achieve? Well, we we definitely thought about international launch. Uh, we definitely did not think about the U.S. <laughs> that was a little bit too too big. But we thought about Europe uh, for sure. Um, did not really think about specific countries. But it would be the dream was be, would be to be on some of the shards around Europe somewhere. Um, and um, it was a bit annoying to sit in Gothenburg to to hear all the all the local producers and studios and so forth we visited, and everybody said we had. Shit music, crap music, uh, stop doing that, it will never work, blah, blah, blah. Uh, not even our own parents thought we did good music, <laughs> which was kind of uh, depressive. But for some reason, Jonas and I was completely uh, convinced that this was something good with this. So, But to get it, get it out and to get some serious producers to work with us, we needed to go to Stockholm. And... Um, we had no money, so we couldn't even take the train to Stockholm. So we were hitchhiking, and sometimes it took two days to go to Stockholm. Uh, and we had to sleep in sleeping bags in the streets and uh, in the woods. And while in Stockholm, we had, no, of course, no money to sleep anywhere, and we didn't know anybody. So we were sleeping on, on benches and, and uh, on, in parks and so forth, and, um, and uh, knocking on doors. Uh, because we, d so we started sending letters to all these record companies. At that time, I think we had like 50 record companies in Stockholm. Now there's maybe 10. Um, and uh, nobody responded, of course. So after two years, we got a little bit tired of nobody responding. So we said, well, we have to go there and force them to listen to the music. So that's basically what we did. So we went around to all the record companies and we, we knocked on the door. We were there in the morning before they arrived. And we said, we're not leaving until we have listened to our tape. And uh, we did that like four or five times. Ended up uh, that Basically, nobody believed in this, of, of course. But we ended up with one uh, one record company that had some feelings of uh, of, of some of the songs called Telegram. <coughs> and um, one day when we were in Gothenburg and we were playing around, we we had no no really interest in Stockholm. We uh, got a, a vinyl um, a white label, of course. So you didn't see the the um, uh, the, the artist or the song, and we used listened to the track and uh, Jonas and I said this is exactly the kind of drum, drum beats we want on the songs and we were missing kind of that drum beat working with that technology we had at that time and this uh, we had to find out who it was and it was this was uh, Kayo's first single called Another Mother and it was produced by Dennis Pop and Dennis Pop was a very unknown guy he was a DJ in Stockholm and we said we have to meet this guy so came to Stockholm like the fifth time or something and we, we went to Swimix <coughs> and uh, met up a very nice guy, René Hedemus there, who was the CEO of the company, very small studio, very simple. And um, Dennis Pop was uh, busy in the studio with, uh, with a dentist and we, we were kind of a little upset, why does he work with a dentist, he should work with us from Gothenburg, we are a great band. And um, I said, yeah, I, will g I promise I will give him the, the tape and we went back home and um, this dentist was Dr. Album, and uh, that was his first album, and which became pretty pretty successful in Europe at least. Um, so we got a, 
finally this first record company we actually thought we had something they signed us and we came to Stockholm to record our first single um, but they had a record company where he he came back from his a trip from London and he was like mm, acid music had just been launched uh, and he was talking about acid and sirens and all that and that was so far away from our, from our music and at that time, in the 90s, also the same in the 80s, you had to be like a niche. So you had to be either hip hop, or you had to be techno, or you had to be pop, or you had to be rock. There was no, and we did everything. I mean, we had like all kind of music. And he didn't have no clue what to do with us. And we felt that also was not the perfect match. At the same time, we had started to look outside Sweden. So um, uh, we have started to connect with, uh, with a record company in Denmark called Mega Records. And uh, basically, four weeks after we signed with the first record company, uh, Mega Records called us back and said, don't sign with anybody. We love all your songs. We understand what you're doing. And then we ordered a signed. Uh, so we, of course, we recorded the first single, but then, then we just felt that this is not a good collaboration. And the CEO of, of Telegram, he, he kind of felt the same because he had no clue what to do with us. Uh, so we convinced him to sell us to Mega Records. So he sold us for 2,000 euros, 20,000 kroner, uh, to Mega Records. And um, that was basically the cost of recording the first single. And um, he became world famous for selling Asobase for 20,000 kroner, uh, unfortunately. Uh, he's a great guy. I have a good uh, respect for him. He's a he is amazing, but it's just sad he was famous for, for, for he that. He should have been in the Guinness World Book of Records yeah, alongside also. you. S so um, uh, the great thing was that we ended up with Mega Records, which was a completely different ball game than in Sweden. Uh, in <laughs> and for us from Gothenburg, it was a bit of a shock to work with the Danes. I personally, I lived in Denmark in the 70s for one year, so I knew a little bit about the culture. But this was really, everybody was smoking you know, marijuana and hash standing up and screaming. And it was, it was, it was a completely different energy than any, anywhere in, in Sweden. And for us from Gothenburg, it was very, wow. But um, uh, there was, I mean, they were very passionate, these guys. And um, so we released the first single and became immediately number uh, seven in Denmark. This is in May uh, 1992. Uh, funny thing, we also released it in Sweden, but somebody put the uh, vinyls at that time, vinyls, well, maybe it was some CDs, but vinyls mainly, in a storage and they lost the key. So uh, we couldn't, we didn't sell any, not even one record in Sweden at the first release. <laughs> it was very funny. But it ended up in quite good in Denmark and um, with a song called Wheel of Fortune. And um, we released it in Norway and in Norway also went very well. So we obviously decided to make the second single, follow up single which for us was very natural to be a song called Mr. Ace. Uh, later on, uh, we renamed it to All I She Wants. And uh, at that time, we uh, decided we have to work with this Dennis Pop now. So this dentist must be ready, you know, so done with him. Uh, so we called uh, Swimix and of course he said, yeah, yeah, he's been waiting for your call. Yeah, why? So it ended up that this cassette tape we gave uh, to the CEO of Swimix, he gave that to Dennis Pop. And Dennis Pop put this in, the car, in his car, and he was not very technical, this uh, Dennis Pop. And it got stuck in his car, and his radio was broken. So basically for six, seven months plus, he'd been listening to our demo, like eight songs every day, going back and forth from the studio, back and forth. And it's like, shit, I really started to like these songs. <laughs> and... Uh, well, it's all about you know timing, luck, and uh, and and some talent too, correct? So, so this that's was your secret to success. Then, yeah, where this, would you be without a broken? This was definitely a big part of of the success because I mean, uh, he was really I mean I'm cursed with your music. He was dreaming our music, um, and uh, so when we called him, he said, "Oh yes, of course." So basically, we called him in June, uh, or maybe even July, and in August we were in the studio, a swimming studio with Dennis Pop. He was still at that time not very famous. Uh, Dennis Pop had, uh, sorry, uh, Dr. Alban yeah, had a few hits, um, and we recorded all the Schwans, and that was um, that was a magical moment um, with with uh, with Dennis Pop and uh, learning so much from a producer. So Jonas and I, and also this is also a learning I have uh, going forward when I work with tech companies uh, is. 
we were a little bit overproducing. We were doing too many melodies and we were doing too much on the songs. And he was very good at taking off songs, as deleting things, uh, simplify things. And uh, this is something that I, that I learned also f in my business life afterwards, that you should simplify everything, everything from presentations to products to whatever you do, simplify it. So what basically he, d he did uh, was to erase 80% what we did. <laughs> um, and of course, adding a touch, which was magical. So I remember Jonas and I, uh, one day before uh, Marlin came up to Stockholm to put the vocals, um, we took the demo of the instrumental version, borrowed a uh, car, we went to a lake and we were just listening on and on and on on the, d on the, on the, uh, uh, on the track and we just felt, now we have it, this is our sound. We just felt that we had it there, even without the vocals. It was just a magical moment. And so you always knew your sound, like you never had to compromise because people sort of met you halfway or did you ever have to really like put yourself in one genre like that you, you didn't want to do at the beginning? Um, in the beginning, we didn't have to compromise at all. Uh, later on, it became more compromises, especially started work in the US. Uh, but on the first time we had, we were completely free spirits. So we we uh, re-recorded some of the songs, but because it, the the success actually happened pretty fast. Once we had our first hit, when we released all the Schwans, it went straight to number one in Denmark and then straight to number one in Norway, and it actually brought Wheel of Fortune to number two. So we were number one, number two for like three months, four months, and then we released our third single called Happy Nation, which went up to number one. So we were number one with Happy Nation, number two with All the Ones, number three with Wheel of Fortune in Denmark and Norway for the whole year. And then we released the album in November uh, 92, and that went up to number one as well and stayed there for almost a year. Um, so every, uh, they, these two markets really um, showed that this would work. Um, and um, then, we got some interest from uh, from Europe, from a, a company called Polygram from Germany, which had rejected us like three times and didn't believe in the music. But after they saw the success in Denmark and Norway, they said, we need to sign these guys. And um, they signed us for Europe um, and Asia, except for Japan. And um, then we released All the Ones as the first single, and that basically went number one everywhere. And then it's continued, yeah. And you've had two successful careers in two different industries. Um, it, you picked like two of the hardest industries that you could possibly pick. I mean, you've been an entrepreneur and you've been a musician. Do you like a challenge? Uh, absolutely. I mean, being a musician and an artist is being an entrepreneur. So, because it is really like running a company. Um, uh, I, yes, of course, I, I like challenges because it was really against all odds that we it worked out. Because also in when you have basically 100% of the people you meet saying you do shit things and it will never work and you stop doing it before it's too late and don't waste your time on this, uh, you have to be either extremely stupid or very stubborn uh, to continue. And, um, and of course, a little bit naive as well. It helps to be young because to do this when you're 47, which I am this year, I probably would be a little bit too... Um, uh, experience to actually do the same ride again um, because I know how uh, how many things they can go wrong and actually went wrong with us but as we kind of fixed the broken glass so many times uh, over the years but on the on the compromise things which is quite interesting which is also a learning I think when you are quite sure about something it, it's very it's important to have advisors of course and to listen to advisors but when you have a vision, you shouldn't compromise too much. Um, so when we started to work in the US, after the we basically were number one in all Europe and Asia, and uh, then we got a contract in, um, it's actually also quite f f funny anecdote. So we had, in the music industry, there was like, this one really uh, legendary record company uh, boss called Clive Davis. He is the guy behind, uh, Simon Garfunkel, Bruce Springsteen, Whitney Houston, Puff Daddy, uh, you name it. Um, nobody had more number one hits than him. And a record company called Arista Records. Uh, of course, we had no clue who he was, <laughs> which was good. Um, and he also rejected us th like three times. And he came to Europe um, summer 1993 
he spent uh, summer on, on a friend's boat and he was cruising around the, the Mediterranean in Spain and France and Italy and everywhere where he went. And we, at that time we had like three singles rolling at the same time. So all the ones, uh, uh, we were fortunate on the sign. Uh, sorry, happiness is before the sign. Um, and um, he just heard these songs everywhere and he couldn't believe his ears. Um, and he went back to New York uh, and suddenly some American DJs have been performing and DJing in Europe brought all the ones back to US and start to play them play all the ones on radio in the US. And uh, Billboard charts is based on 50% on sales and 50% on radio play. And uh, he started to see us coming up on, on the, the Billboard lists without being released on all the ones. So the first thing he did was calling up and then he signed us uh, eventually. And uh, working with Clyde Davis was a, was a different ball game because in Europe we are quite, well, Sweden we are very nice. In Germany, they are quite nice. In England, they're quite nice. In US, they are ruthless. They're very, very tough. And working with Clive Davis on top of that, which is the god of the gods, was <laughs> extremely difficult. Um, and it was it was a quite funny um, uh, beginning of our relationship when we come in. I think this is the second time we meet uh, Clive Davis. Of course, he's, he has his own skyscraper on Fifth Avenue. And of course, he sits on the top. And uh, the staff is, oh, you're going up to Clive. We never met him. Well, you never met your boss? No, we never met him. Okay. And uh, basically, he'd only been down from his top floor once. That was like on floor 17 or whatever, because it was a fire there once and they had renovated it. So we went down to inspect <laughs> the, the, the floor. That was the only time we went down in. Uh, so, this is a very hierarchic um, environment to work in the music industry and working in the US overall. So, anyway, coming into his, his office, which is probably double the size of this room. Um, he uh, had uh, three or four stairs going down. Um, and we went down, of course, and he sits in the corner in his big desk. And at that time, a huge TV screen. I don't remember how big that was, maybe that size. But it was at that time, it was a big screen. Um, and uh, basically, uh, I don't remember, one of us kind of tripled um, and we heard afterwards that he had built these stairs that one stair was a little shorter than the others and he learned this from these from the Romans so uh, when you entered in the, in Rome and we entered to meet Caesar uh, they also had one stair was smaller so basically you stumbled so you actually bow uh, to the Caesar so he had the same structure on on purpose uh, so so you gonna go there and bow. Well, it's quite quite interesting as a Swede to come there and see this. So anyway, you sit there and then you sit in this desk, and of course the desk is this high, and you sit on this very small chair. You you look up to this. He's he's a quite short guy, but you look up and you sit like this. Okay, <laughs> very uncomfortable. And he basically says hi, and then he puts. He's gonna watch this. Puts play, and one hour we watch a documentary documentary about him, how good he is. And all these achievements and blah blah blah, and we used to look at each other. What is this? It's like is this a hidden camera somewhere? And the funny thing is, and after this is done, he says, "Well, I think we're going to do this." And he had this blah 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 speech about what he's going to do with us. And then suddenly we have in the corner, it's like, "Bravo, Mr. Mrs. Davis, that's a great idea!" And there's two people applauding in the corner, which we were not even in. We didn't even see them. So he's like, "Yes, Tony Davis, this is a great idea." <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, it was a very entertainment, uh, entertaining thing, and the, I think the great thing that we had no clue how big this guy was, and how powerful he was. So we, of course, we argue with him all the time, as Swedes do, when we don't like an idea. But it comes back to compromising, I think. So first album, of course, he couldn't touch um, really much, but and second album didn't touch. But third album, he wanted to be part of it, so he wanted to be the executive producer of the whole album. I thought you were going to say he wanted to be a backup vocalist. No, but okay. no, he <laughs> he wanted to be part of not only being executive producer, but also put some of his songwriters on top of this. So we did our album for Europe, then we had to redo all the songs for the U.S different lyrics, different productions, different everything. This is our third album, which did not work out at all. So we actually lost the whole, the spirit of the band was totally lost in an American commercial way. So yes, we had to compromise on that album and it was complete disaster. So that's one example of the hierarchies that exist in the music industry. Um, 
the music industry has been somewhat disrupted by tech. Um, can you take us a bit through um, the progression of like how the music industry has been disrupted and especially like given um, Spotify and like streaming services um, and what your thoughts are for the future of like how that's going to develop? So one, um, one big issue that artists always uh, had in the past, at least, was that we were really depending on having a record company. Number one was very expensive to record, um, to find a studio. Today you have your computer and you can basically you can use your iPhone almost to record and do a song. Um, so there's no really cost there. Uh, so in the past the record company really had to finance studios and then you had a distribution, fiscal distribution of music. Uh, which was controlled by the record industry, so they were kind of had a monopoly of it. And then, of course, the record companies um, demanded to have a master tape deal and publishing deal. Um, uh, so they were they they owned the whole value chain. So you had n really no choice than working with a record company. And also, they they charge you for it. So they kind of they <laughs> they charge you for everything, on not only once but ten times. Um, and um, which is unfortunately part of the culture of, of the music industry. <laughs> um, so, as a consumer and as a musician, uh, it was very difficult in the 90s to, to get the music you wanted to hear, because uh, 80% of all released music, or I think maybe it was even 85% of all released music was not available to buy for somebody, because the record companies they only focused on the most selling things and they didn't have any warehouses or they didn't have any um, uh, any storage of, of CDs or vinyls. So if you wanted to have a song, you couldn't find it anywhere. So when Napster 99 was launched, um, uh, I thought personally, and I was also a very, very tech-savvy guy, I loved tech and started in the tech industry in 1994, uh, I thought it was the greatest company on the planet but I was very alone to think that uh, Prince also thought they were great but I think we were the only artists on the on the planet unfortunately that, that thought so and everybody else thought they were pirates um, and thought they would destroy the industry and they really believed what all the record executives said that these guys they're gonna steal the music and so forth which actually was not the case they wanted to work with the music industry but the music industry, number one, was too arrogant to understand what technology was. They had no clue what internet was. They had no clue what peer-to-peer -peer technology was. And they had no clue what the actual consumer wanted. So they did everything they could to destroy them. And they obviously succeeded to destroy them. And uh, what happened after uh, was that they had 50 peer-to-peer -peer piracy uh, platforms that was not possible to, to control. Uh, personally, I think that whole development was great because it really forced the music industry to, to disrupt themselves um, and, um, and to change. And suddenly you can actually access all music on the planet, which is, I mean, music is, is part of our culture. So it's, 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 I think it's the record company's responsibility to have it available for all the, you know, for, for all the consumers and all the fans. Um, and also, as an artist, you want your music to be a, be available for everyone all around the planet. Um, so, I just loved my Napster, but but not the rest of the my industry did not love them. Um, obviously, they were right, uh, and we can see that today. Follow up with, I mean, Spotify is uh, an, an Napster, <laughs> but in a more regulated way, correct? Um, and, um, and streaming. Um, so. I think it was a very healthy um, uh, uh, um, uh, disruption. Uh, it was almost brought the whole music industry to the knees. Well, it brought them to the knees, but it almost broke broke the whole music industry. Um, I think the big question is: Should it be better if they actually would have broken totally, and we could have built a new mu music industry? I think yes, but. Now we have it as it is, so we have to live with it. And actually now they are finally started to adapt a little bit to what's good for consumers and not make it too complicated. And they are finally also understanding that giving license to music tech companies, for example, it makes it a little bit easier than they did only like one year ago. Um, so they are getting it. 
which I'm happy they do. Um, I, I wish they do they they got it 15 years ago. Then we would have a much more of Spotify's today. It was very difficult to get licenses uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago too. But now it's opening up, so it's 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 we are finally there. But I I know that the 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 they had no really clue for 17 years uh, what was going on in the, in the tech industry. And Spotify has received a lot of criticism. Um, I think that you think that it's undue criticism um, for not paying artists what they deserve. Um, who is actually at fault for that if it's not Spotify? Well, Spotify have created uh, the most amazing technology on, on this planet. First of all, they have a superior product, which they have proven uh, everybody's a little bit afraid of of when Apple was coming and Google was coming that they will obviously beat um, uh, Spotify but they've proven that they have a unbelievable technology superior technology uh, and superior product and they are passionate about one thing which is music they don't do like a thousand things that Google and Apple do even though Apple and Google have put tens of billions of dollars into it they can still not be even close to as superior as, as, as Spotify is. And I'm super proud of Spotify really being the category winner and category killer in the music industry globally, um, uh, which is great. And um, what their business model, of course, is, is, is a difficult one because they are depending so much on, on material they don't own. Uh, and this, you probably have read in the newspaper lately that they have fixed um, a lot of the uh, of the other contract with the record companies, uh, but it's they have um, obviously uh, they are depending on each other. So in the beginning, they were really um, uh, in a weak position because they didn't have so many users, and the record companies could put a lot of pressure on them. But today, when they have 60 million paying viewer uh, customers and another 100 million or more um, non-paying, um, they are the most important platform on the planet. They have their playlists in the U.S. have more listeners than actually all radio stations put together in the U.S. So, uh, for as a record company, they can't release a song without having Spotify supporting them. So they are in a super good position now, finally, to really uh, uh, have this going. So, when it comes to the business model, it's something they have negotiated with the record companies and the publishers, of course. Uh, so the deal there is not Spotify's fault that they're not paying out uh, more to record because they're paying out already 70%. So that's a lot. And then of course they have, some, they have to have some money to run the business and grow and pay the salaries and marketing and so forth. So the big problem is not Spotify. The big problem is the money goes into record companies and there it gets stuck. So when you, get, when you look at how much money you make on X amount of streams, it look, might look ridiculous, but you have to have think about two things first. Number one, the alternative was piracy. So we had free downloading for a long time, um, and artists made nothing out of that. So they obviously they killed piracy. Nobody wants to download anything anymore because you have everything in the cloud. Um, this number one. Number two is that if artists complain, is because the record companies don't pay them out, but that's that's a record company problem rather than a Spotify problem. So I think Spotify is definitely my heroes. I almost wish they came two years later though, because that would have put <laughs> the music industry even in a worse position. So more companies could have actually taken over because there's so much we can do f with music that is not the traditional music industry stuff. Mm -hmm. So obviously the the problem lies with the record labels. Um, so how do you use tech to actually disrupt them further? Is it going to be Spotify who's going to disrupt it further or is it going to be something else that comes later, do you think? I think Spotify are going to do a few things that are going to disrupt things. I, I'm pretty sure they're going to start doing their own content. They're already doing that, but not really promoting it. Um, I think the Netflix model is definitely a winning model when you own your own content. Um, they, Spotify doing it very smart now. They, they, they're pushing a lot of cover versions on the playlists. So, and the cover versions belongs to independent record companies where they have completely different uh, royalty um, payments to. And um, they're putting them in, in, in a stronger position. But owning their own material and becoming a record company per se right now will be too sensitive. But they eventually they will ha definitely have some kind of 
own production, yeah, and that, that could be quite easy, easy for them to turn. It's, it's only politics right now where they can't do it. So if you look at Netflix and why they are so successful, it's because they have their own, own uh, content. Um, but I think the big disruptors is definitely companies around Spotify, because Spotify will focus on what they're good at. It's actually distributing music. Um, and um, there will be, there's, I mean, there's a great startup scene in Stockholm, and I guess here in Uppsala as well, where you have so many different uh, cool companies, uh, like Soundtrap, for example, where collaborate online and which becoming like a you know big big thing now and uh, a lot of uh, great uh, distribution um, uh, tools uh, you have a lot of I think one one big problem in the music industry today is uh, the monetization of your songs uh, it's a very old-fashioned system and you go through like six seven layers and a lot of paperwork a lot of misunderstanding 60% of the music industry money goes to the wrong hands that's a lot. I mean, in the banking industry, 0.06% would not be acceptable. In, in, in music industries, 60% goes to the wrong people and actually ends up in organizations sometimes that nobody picks up. We call it black box money. And, um, and um, like Stim or other similar uh, companies. That's why also another amazing company called Cobalt, uh, also a Swedish company, have completely disrupted that part of the collection society world. Uh, where you can directly collect uh, money and um, avoid also paying to the wrong people and make it much more fair. I mean, it's a big business and it's it's a lot of things that still can be disruptive. But as an artist, uh, I think it's the greatest time of, of all when you can sit home and you can do your own music and you can use social media and, and you can use all these different tools. And um, there's a great, I mean, S Stockholm is uh, very, it's, 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 really, uh, it's really happening when it comes to music tech, which is, I think, the future for all these different areas in the ecosystem around the music industry. And, and what do you think it is as part of the Swedish culture? Is it the Swedish culture, actually, that um, sort of promotes um, to Sweden to punch above its weight in terms of music and tech? I think uh, uh, Swedish culture. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things with Swedish culture, which is uh, great. Um, uh, I think one thing which is, and, and by the way, I think music and tech is very similar, and it's the same reason why we work together. And also, I think there's the same kind of reasons why we are successful in these two areas. Um, to run a, a tech company is very similar to running a, a music band. Uh, where the song is the product um, and um, it's all about collaboration and actually we're not afraid of working with our competitors like you don't see another songwriter as a competitor it's actually a collaborator um, in the US you almost have to sign an NDA before you get the business card it's completely ridiculous uh, culture and oh, everybody's very protective and nobody wants to share any ideas and so forth because you're so afraid that somebody's going to steal it. In Sweden, we completely the opposite. We love to have other people see what you're doing and come with input. And uh, I see very often actually competitors get together to get a bigger client abroad because they know they're too small to do it themselves. And this is really one of the strengths we have here in Sweden with the collaborating thing that we, we help each other. And I'm really happy to see places like this and places like yours and and uh, like Epicenter in Stockholm and, and other, other places that we really put together uh, wor um, co-working spaces, but it's much more than co-working spaces. It's like creating ecosystems that everybody can help each other. Uh, and that's definitely the strength in Sweden, Swedish culture, culture to, to work with each other and be open-minded. And um, so just going back to the start of your business, your foray into business, I think there's a lot of misconception that like you were in music and then you went into business. Like it seems like it was a sort of, it was intermingled, like you were working with business and tech right from the very start. Tell us about that sort of um, like the, the journey from like music into business and um, and was it as clean cut as most people think, or were you working with tech um, all through? Yeah, so um, I normally have um, doing things and then I th kind of think about what I'm doing. So, um, and try to learn from my mistakes and not do it twice. Um, and that's a little bit of my life philosophy. Um, 
my first company was actually, it was called Cyber Sound Studio, Arbe, uh, which was our studio. And the first project we did there was Acer Base. So it was kind of uh, a, a tech project, even though I didn't think about it as a tech project at that time. But if I look at how we today and I today run tech projects, it's a little bit like how we did it. Uh, so we had the studio and we had the equipment and we had the band that we put together and we run it re really like a company. So, and um, um, my first uh, interaction with internet was around 1994 when we launched uh, com and we got uh, 1.7 million uh, well, hits um, in the first, uh, I think, six or seven weeks which was equivalent to 10% of all internet, uh, which was great. I mean, and int internet at that time, we had, we had really no clue what that was. It was a cool thing that came from the US. Wow, uh, World Wide Web invention somewhere in Switzerland. Okay, and we had our quite, well, not quite, very boring page, but it was a page with the pictures and so forth, not, nothing really fancy. And uh, then we let the record company run it because we didn't have the time. So basically it was the same website for for like four or five years um, but I think it was I th there was a cool factor to be on internet at that time but I started to invest in uh, in tech companies um, and media companies uh, 95 96 and um, I got involved with a company called boxman um, and uh, which was actually about selling music online uh, and the vision was to sell, uh, well, digital music online. Um, but it was a little bit challenging at that time because everybody had 56K modems and a song was 40 megabytes, for 30, 40 megabytes. It would take basically two, three weeks to download one song. So it was not really a sustainable business. Uh, but we knew that everybody will have broadband. Uh, we thought everybody would have broadband 99, but that was a bit wrong. And we also knew there was some research around the world uh, to get one standard or a couple, at least a couple of standard uh, compression systems, Japan and Germany. Uh, but we were, so we were waiting for this. So while we're doing that, we were selling CDs uh, or as uh, like post order um, uh, over internet, uh, physical CDs. And we collected a, a quite big uh, database. We had almost two million uh, customers, which became the largest uh, e-commerce company in Europe. And the idea was to collect these customers and then once technology was ready, we were about to launch our real idea, which was actually quite similar to what iTunes was all about later on. Um, but we did a lot of mistakes. Uh, we had the wrong, we built our own technology. We had, at act actually at that time, you had to build your own platforms, but we used IBM. We thought that was a good platform, but it was not scalable. Uh, we were way too early, spent way too much money on the wrong things, and um, got wrong investors on board. And um, um, we went the uh, amazing dot-com bubble death, uh, uh, and I went to the grave like '99. Uh, but it was a good, um, a good learning curve of of being very careful of what kind of investors you get on board and, and also what you're spending money on. Um, in the 90s, I'm not sure how many experienced in 90 internet boom in the 90s, but um, it was a pretty crazy time, especially in the end of the 90s, where valuations were not based at all on, on real values, uh, or turnarounds or potential revenues, profits. It was, in the end, it was based on on burn rate, um, and so people basically try to burn as much money as possible to get as high a valuation as possible. So you just employ more people, and we get a higher valuation. And this was not driven by the entrepreneurs, by the way. Those were driven by the banks, the, the investors. So employ more people, spend more money, so we can have higher valuations. So we can invest more money. Okay, <laughs> why not? Boo.com is a great example of that. Um, and uh, that led to the to the to the big uh, break, uh, 99-2000. Of course, it was not a sustainable business model to do that, uh, which apparently nobody really s thought about at that time, because everybody got really blind of these enormous valuations and how it was extremely easy to raise capital at that time. 
everything with dot com, yes, here's a million dollars. Doesn't matter what you were doing. <laughs> you know, it's like have the one page dot com, one million dollars, yes. Uh, so it was a very healthy um, uh, learning when everything, when the bubble burst, 99, 2000. And what was the thing that you took away from that experience? I mean, now that you've had a lot of success with Norvik Ventures and uh, you have Stockholm Vibe, you're a part of Epicenter, like you're doing quite well. So how did you bounce back from the things that were in a way unsuccessful, but good learning experiences? Uh, well, uh, it, it was it was a pretty um, interesting wake up. Uh, so I had a few um, few ventures at that time. I was I'm a shareholder in a company called Result, uh, which we started. Um, uh, so Ola Alvason is the is the main guy behind that. He was also the main guy behind Boxman. So when we toured around with Boxman to launch it in Europe, um, when Ola w toured with me, uh, it was. Uh, red carpets and everything was organized at the hotels and we had like very good uh, you know schedules of interviews and everything was really very planned very efficient and when he came himself he uh, without us um, uh, he had to f figure out what restaurant to go to what meetings to go to where to stay what to go. it was a mess so he figured why don't we have like a infrastructure for entrepreneurs um, like the record industry or for artists. That's how results started uh, early 99. Obviously being in the so-called time sector um, uh, at that time, which was technology, uh, IT, media and entertainment, um, when the bubble burst, it was not a very, uh, very healthy. Um, result actually survived though, which is interesting. And today we have helped over 300 companies to go international. Uh, and result is the management team for Epicenter in uh, in, in Stockholm, uh, amongst other things. Um, but the wake up call to see all my on paper billionaire friends, '99, uh, uh, <laughs> and go from heroes and being front side of Times Magazine and being the t leader of tomorrow in at the World Economic Forum uh, from one day and the other day. They went from heroes to zeros, and suddenly they were like fraudsters, gangsters. They were all wrong. They were blah, blah. so. I mean, 2000, 2001. You didn't want to be called a te technology guru or dot com guy or working with internet. 2000, 2001 it was like same thing as working with the Mexican cartel. <laughs> Being a drug dealer was probably the, the same level of acceptance in the society, 2001. So that was interesting to go from really being the stars to be the, you know, the scumbags of the world. Um, but then learning from that, we, I mean, it was not like we did not believe in technology, but we had to rethink the whole model, of course. It has to be a sustainable business. Um, I was living abroad and um, I was starting to do other things um, because I was a little bit tired of the whole tech scene because it was kind of, not only we lost a lot of money, but also kind of lost a little bit of our soul as well because we really put everything into the tech and um, I was still doing my music of course at the same time, but which was my my little escape of, uh, from reality and I can go do my little touring and have my screaming fans that said, yes, we still love you. Uh, that helped. But all my other tech friends did not have 100,000 fans screaming at them. They only had angry <laughs> angry investors and and uh, really evil uh, journalists um, saying they were gangsters. So most of them, they lost all their hair or get, actually, uh, Ola Alvarsson, he, he turned gray-haired in like basically six months in that crisis. It was kind of amazing to see that. And, um, but I was living abroad for many years and I was looking back um, 2010 actually to, 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 to Stockholm and uh, I was abroad for tw 20 years in uh, New York and London and, 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 and other places and started seeing now, now my friends are back. I mean, it's actually happening. So it was quite interesting to see platforms like Spray, for example, and out of Spray you have the founders of King and the founders of uh, Stardle and a lot of these companies um, uh, came from, from the spray platform out of Stardle. You had like the um, uh, Trade Doubler and yeah, the Spotify guys came from the, So the, some of these companies really nursed and created what we have today is all the unicorns. 
So it was a very important uh, journey, I think, to learn from all these different mistakes that happen. And today we have in a fantastic platform, but it all started in the 90s. And uh, I think one of the best things that you're doing right now is Soundio. Can you just tell us a bit about that, um, how it works, and um, what you sort of foresee the future of that being? Yeah, so Soundio is uh, uh, one of my, well, not only my, I mean, one of the crazy projects I'm involved with, uh, a co-founder of, of this. So um, we met, uh, me and a partner of mine, um, we met this crazy, uh, nutty professor, uh, scientist, I would say, in Finland. Uh, his name is, of course, Jussi. They're only Jussi and Pekka in, uh, in Finland. They all call the same. We have two Pekkas on the board and one Jussi. Um, and um, he uh, he's, um, was a musician, great musician. He was a music teacher. Uh, and he was also uh, studying neuroscience, um, and he was a great programmer and hacker. So he was very frustrating being a, a music teacher that nine out of ten of his students, they dropped off after one year, stopped playing. And uh, he did some research and realized it's not him being a bad teacher, it's actually the same numbers all around the world. And Actually, guitar is even worse. It's nine and a half out of ten, according to Fender and, and, and Gibson, that uh, drops out within one year. Um, and other research is saying that 85% of the world population wants to be able to play an instrument, but only 5% can. So why is it so difficult to learn an instrument? Um, so he started to program, and he basically, for like three years, he met a, another n <laughs> nutty professor, uh, uh, called Ali, um, probably only Ali in Finland. <laughs> uh, yeah, also super smart guy. And uh, they locked themselves, a little bit like the same uh, journey that Jonas and I had with our music, they locked themselves in, in a cellar and they just started the program and they created this artificial intelligent algorithm that understands music um, the way a musician understands music, the music theory. Uh, so we met them, they had really no clue what to do with this. And uh, so we created a company, it's called Soundio, and uh, we started to build a couple of products. Uh, first product was a piano product, um, and um, where you can basically take any song from, from YouTube and start playing immediately, and it sounds awesome from day one. So what this artificial intelligence does is it understands music theory in a way, so it takes out all the bad uh, uh, notes, so whatever chord you take, it will always fit into the song in real time. So you can take any song and immediately start playing. So you can basically pick up any instrument and immediately play like a professional musician. So this is a great uh, technology in the base. So to create a product out of this, we tested a few different things that make sense. And we came up with um, a product called Amped after basically, yeah, what is it now, four years <laughs> soon? Four years, yeah, four years of trying, failing, trialing, failing, trying. Typical startup thing. You have to fail a lot, but the key is with the startup, you have to fail, but fail fast, and then stand up and fail fast again. So we kind of did that many times. Um, we have finally found a product we think is a great first product called Amped, and so we have added to this artificial intelligence, and we, it's also an AR experience because you hear something different than actually the real uh, uh, notes. We have added an education system to it. So uh, we choose to uh, start with guitar. Because guitar, guitar have, there's two, two, two hard things with guitar. Number one, when you play, it sounds horrible so for your ears. And then on top of it, it hurts a lot for your fingers. So your body says, no, 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 double no to continue playing. And it takes a long time before it sounds even close to nice to start playing a guitar. That's why it's so difficult uh, to learn uh, to play guitar. So what our technology do and what the product do, and we created uh, an environment in this app that is very similar to um, a Guitar Hero. So it's, it's very gamified, it's very fun. You get a lot of points and applauds and everything when you do right. And you start very simple uh, just with your, your right hand and you're strumming the guitar. You don't even be using your left hand in the beginning. So the technology takes care of the three fingers. You need, need three fingers to take uh, an accord. So you don't even use that. So the t technology takes care of the accord, 
So even when you're strumming like this, you it sounds like a full accord. So you just have to learn very easy to do the rhythm. And it takes a while to actually find the rhythm and so forth. Once you have got the rhythm, the technology feels that you're ready for the next step and you move to the next level. And then you introduce the first finger. And the first finger, still the two other fingers, the technology take care of the two other fingers. So when you do, when you strum, it's still the full accord, but you're only using one finger, which makes it very simple to play a song. And you can choose any song, and it's automated. The, the aut it's automated uh, the the whole um, the, the the lessons to the song. We normally we start with some simple songs in the beginning until you learn how to handle the guitar. Then slowly, when you have that first finger, we introduce the second finger, so the technology takes care of the third finger. So basically, it's the artificial intelligence. It's like 100% at the beginning, then goes down to 80, then 60, then 40, then 30, then 20. So it's a little bit like bicycling. When you learn how to bicycle, you have a balancer, uh, stabilizers, and you uh, focus on paddling and steering, and you don't think about uh, balance. And balance in this is um, um, music theory, because music, music theory is very, very difficult. And you just have to think about actually learning how to express yourself with, with, uh, with your instrument and hearing the melodies in your head and it's, it's such a great experience to actually be able to pick up a guitar and immediately start playing. And basically you learn how to play a song within weeks. And when are you planning to roll this out? So we have tested the, the, uh, the product now in Canada. And we choose Canada because it's an English-speaking country. It's uh, not one of the main markets, but uh, they are open-minded people, a little bit more similar to the, to the Europeans. And um, uh, we choose to aim for like 5,000 users to find, fine-tune the technology, the onboarding process and, and all that. So we're in the middle of, of that right now. And um, as all technology companies, you never know when you're going to be ready with the products. You're probably never going to be ready, but ready enough to do a big launch, um, hopefully uh, this year, so in a few months. Um, we just got the uh, the first um, a deal with um, with Universal Sign now, so we have also the con original content, and we Im implemented now also um, a live stream to YouTube, and then we're going to be able to connect it to to Spotify as well. So you can choose basically any song to play to, and immediately start learning to play with it with the guitar. Unfortunately, I think that we have to start wrapping things up, but a couple of quick questions before we finish up. Um, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, well, it's definitely to never give up um, and, um, and fail fast uh, when you're doing a company. Fail fast, you have to fail a lot of times, learn from your mistake, you just do it over and over again. What's the worst advice you've ever been given? Oh, it, you always have. I think a lot of advices are really bad. So <laughs> uh, the, I think the worst advice is always if somebody says something just because they want to say something and because they want to seem smart. Those are always the worst, worst advice. Um, and uh, you have three kids. Um, so if any of them wanted to go into music, would you encourage that? I will encourage them to do creative stuff in music, and of course, I would have, uh, I would say, one kid doing music, okay. without me pushing, and another one dancing to music a lot. Um, uh, so I wouldn't discourage them. Of course, music is a great uh, uh, way of expressing yourself. It's a great way to meet friends, and it's a great way of getting self-confidence. Uh, if they will ask me if they can be. Uh, Rock stars, I would definitely say no. <laughs> um, uh, they definitely have to focus on education first. But of course, music. I mean, music should always be passionate. It should not be be driven by business. It has to be. It has to come from the heart, not from the brain. I think that's the key. And music should. It's one of the most um, global languages and one of the few things that really unite the whole planet. So we we saw that with our music. We reached out to places. A lot of places, like Japan, for example, they don't speak English. They have no clue what we were singing. And the funny thing in Japan, we even had a was it? They even had a because some there was several Swedish bands that actually hit uh, Japan uh, after we we hit the like '93, and they had in the record stores a Swedish top ten in Swedish. 
<laughs> Swedish workers because they love the melodies. They didn't understand English anyway, so uh, Swedish English doesn't matter. So they sold a lot of Swedish music in in Swedish lyrics in Japan. And if you weren't in music or tech, what would you be doing? If I was in music or tech. If you weren't in either of them. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I would probably. Life wouldn't be worth living. <laughs> yeah. I would probably be an entrepreneur somewhere, uh, in somehow. I'm not sure. I like to cross, uh, break, break rules and and uh, break doors and 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 stretch things and challenge the planet a little bit. So I probably would do something crazy. And uh, you've obviously benefited from role models in your career, and you've been role models to other um, musicians and tech people and entrepreneurs. What advice would you give somebody who's just starting out on that journey? Uh, well, the, uh, the key to every successful journey is to have a great team. That's team, 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 team. You're never better than you when you when you, when you uh, than you um, your losers end. Which means, if you have somebody in the team that is not up to it, they cannot deliver. It's not good. Um, so it's, I normally compare it to. If you have a, a Formula One Ferrari car and you have. Schumacher before his accident when he was a good driver and your pull position uh, and uh, if you're missing one tire you go get nowhere so key to everything is when I look at the investments is all about the, uh, all about the team um, I know for one thing is that business plans I remember in the 90s we always do this hundred page business plans where business plans doesn't matter at all because nothing in that business plan will ever be true Nothing. You will never follow any numbers. The product will never be there. Just skip it. So it's not. In the, the key is that you have a vision. You have a strong team, and they know what they want to do. Because that product that you think you're going to launch will never be the product in the end you're going to launch. So you have to believe in the team. That's the key. And what do you want your legacy to be? Um, what do you think it is already? Well, uh, one would definitely be music. Um, if I'm going to try to come back and do something in music, you never know. I mean, look at Rolling Stones. They have, they're almost 100 years old. Will <laughs> they, they ever die? <laughs> they get still a little bit mummified, but uh, they're still going strong, correct? So you can maybe do that again. But I mean, it will never be the same as it was um, in, the, in, the, in the 90s. Having said that, though, we did a comeback uh, 2007, 2008. And the last concert we did was uh, actually, the biggest concert we ever have done. So it was we had two hundred thousand people showed up in the last concert in, in Wrocław in Poland. So that is a that is a kick you don't get anywhere else. So it's kind of heavy drug uh, to be on stage and have all these people screaming at you, which is which is great. Right now I don't miss it, but you never know, might miss it one day. Um, uh, so that's definitely one part of the legacy. But I I definitely like to. Um, leave also a legacy with a few great companies and also for me it's important that we do something that helps the planet and helps the world so I'm, I'm very involved with a lot of organizations for sustainability work a lot in Africa and India and so forth and I work with projects like um, uh, war on cancer which I have here uh, try to disrupt the whole cancer industry uh, which is also uh, another topic could take another hour to talk about uh, so I try to work with things that is close to my heart as well that can change and try to look at problems from a different angle the same way I looked at music well thanks for joining us here in Uppsala um, I think I will join everybody in giving you a huge round of applause thank you To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling. Thank you.